Well, I'm set to go. Are you? Are you good to go? Well, who are you asking? It depends. Jason. Jason, are you ready? <laughs> yeah, I'm ready. <laughs> All right. <laughs> <laughs> you may be around the world and thank you for joining us once again on truth to you.org that's truth number two letter you.org in season two of torah pearls i'm john and joining me in the virtual truth to you studio all the way from ireland is jason of spiritual babies.net g'day mate i said i was ready but i'm actually not ready one second <laughs> after all of that <laughs> no, on, you're ready are you ready is everyone ready yep everyone's uh, ready okay ah oh, no on second thought i'm not ready yeah, you're right i'm sure that i was ready <laughs> I'm not sure if I have the right. Hang on, hang on, hang on. Yeah, there we go. Okay, that's, that's better. I had the wrong mic button. Right. I should sound better. Okay, now I'm ready. Okay, and joining us from Indonesia is the author of Let's Get Biblical Why Doesn't Judaism Accept the Christian Messiah, Volumes 1 and 2. You can get a copy from his website, OutreachJudaism.org. That's OutreachJudaism.org. Welcome back to the program, Rabbi Tobias Singer. Great to be here. Thank you. We are in Nassau. We're continuing through the book of Numbers. It kicks off from Numbers chapter 4, verse 21. Just as a point that... Sorry. <laughs> yeah, you're already interrupted. What? That's it. That's it. That's it. I have to take over right away. I have to start Go in. On. This is the largest portion of the entire of the entire year. This Parshas Nosso has more passages than any other portion of the week uh, with 176 verses, uh, which is precisely the number of the largest chapter in the book of Psalms, Psalm 119, the largest chapter completely in, 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 in that section of the Bible, uh, with also 176 passages, and the Talmud, the largest tractate is Bava Basra, which deals in the laws of, of, of torts and real estate and so on, 176 folios. I didn't know that. Yeah. Fair. Well, how about that? I didn't know. So now it seems to continue in the same vein as the uh, as last week's Torah portion. Uh, it's just uh, duties of various Levites. We've got the sons of Gershon. We've got the sons of Merari. We've got uh, talks about the sons of uh, uh, Korah. And it says in verse 46, all who were numbered of the Levites, who Moses, Aaron, and the leaders of Israel numbered by their families and by their fathers' houses, of 30 years old and above, even to 50 years old, everyone who came to do the work of the service and the work of bearing burdens in the tabernacle of meeting, those were number, those numbered were 8,580. It says, according to the commandment of the Lord, they were numbered by the hand of Moses, each according to his service and according to his task. Thus, they were numbered by him as the Lord commanded uh, Moses. So they've got their own particular and specific duties uh, regarding the, the, the tabernacle. Yeah, was, um, what's kind of cool there is uh, lately I've been trying to keep my mind um, attuned to things that are in the text, which reflect, if you like, an instruction that isn't in the text. And twice in um, so far in this Torah portion, we've had um, instruction where Moses has been asked to do the fine print. So, so far, um, two events, two statements that have said that um, God's given the bigger picture, this needs to be done, and this is how you're going to do it. But Moses has been left to iron out the details. And um, I find that very interesting. Often, and, and it's, I guess it's fine to do it that way, often we um, are kind of taught to look at the text and to assume that everything about our faith should be found in that text or that, or that man isn't allowed to um, not embellish, but to maybe unfold the text a little bit more than it is. But here we see Moses isn't given an instruction, and he, as a human, was to do extra things which weren't necessarily written down, that there was some other instruction other than the instruction that is in our sheets, in our text. Point made. Tobia. That's a, that's a very important theme like, that Jason uh, just put forward. That is going to be a big part of the voltage of this entire parasha. There's a reason why anyone, Moses in particular, would be apprehensive about introducing anything new. You have to remember that this is a family that has been shattered by the loss of two young men, Nodav and Avihu, the sons of Aaron, who in fact wanted to do something. They wanted to encounter God, emulate their uncle, 
and they died, they perished in the process. We're going to see where the Torah is going to be very careful whether where you cannot, when we get to we'll talk about it in the blessings, you cannot deviate from an exact prescription, but the fear is there. The fear among the people is there is what happens if people want to bring extra gifts. We're going to see later on with the uh, leaders of each uh, tribe are going to voluntarily, personally, from their own funds, provide all kinds of beautiful vessels for the tabernacle. Mm-hmm. This is going. This is a frightening prospect. Is this appropriate? He, Moses is going to ask God, "Is it appropriate to add it?" Because people are concerned. Remember this. You know everything that we've worked through in the past is going to come up over and over again. We are dealing here in the house that man, creating the image of God, is is building, not according to our laws, but according to a, a, a series of laws that do not make immediate sense to us. Certainly, as we're going to see, laws of cleanliness and uncleanliness. We certainly can see dirt hands. And we're very fortunate that Hashem makes it that if you have a dinner and you put it away, leftovers in the refrigerator, and you forget about it for a week, that you go back, and what do we do first? We smell it. And if it smells bad, we know to throw it away. That's a big blessing, because if the mm. chicken didn't go bad, that means imagine if chicken went bad, but it had no different odor. We'd, we'd be dead. Mm. This is the like unbelievable thing. I, I one time, years ago, went on a lecture series in Texas somewhere for like a week. A week. And we, I don't know what the heck was in my mind. I took a chicken out, and, it, and I left it out. When I came back to the house... So the chicken was there. Oh no! Oh man! That's, if you want to get back at your sister-in-law, just put a put some bottoms on. That happened to a friend floor. of mine. There was a smell in his car. He couldn't figure it out. And what had happened was he left a a, a chicken uh, under a whole lot of stuff in the back of his station wagon. And oh my goodness, I, yeah, I know what it's smell like. Smell is unbelievable. So normally we say, "Oh wow, stink! What a terrible thing it is! It's horrific! It's a smell is beyond an imagination." But I, I so initially I said, "This is terrible," but then. Later on, I thought to myself, wow, imagine if fish and chicken and meat didn't take on a, 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 a odious odor. So what would happen? We would, we actually, we'd be, we'd all be sick. We'd all be dead. This is the biggest mm-hmm. blessing in the world because the chicken looks the same visually. So Hashem put it in there. What's happening is in the natural world, we could follow our noses. We could follow our senses. We could follow our visual uh, requisite that we have been in, in given. And we're able to measure what's appropriate, what's not appropriate. But here throughout, so the listeners understand, the, the great leaders of the the children of Israel are called upon to erect and, 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 and guide our people in a home that is not governed by the laws of, of physics and, and science and what makes microbes and these these microscopic animals create such smells and what, what does that. No, it's based on laws that we don't have a sense for. So therefore, there, what Jason says is very important, that there is care that's given. One other point I should make is, this is just a theme and I won't but just a point that's very important. That is, we see, we're going to see a theme that goes throughout this portion. And that is that the nation of Israel have different tribes, and each one has different attributes, different qualities that they can act upon, or they can misuse and be misguided about that. We see that at the end of Jacob's life, as he approached his death, he, he gave his children blessings that would... So what was central is that each tribe and each even member of the family of the Levites in the Kohanim, although they're each endowed with enorm- with 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 enormous potential, each one does bring something else to the table. And that's what we're seeing over here as well. Each one is contributing, but they're all equal. And we're going to see that at the end of this portion. And just quickly, while we're talking about the duties of the Levites, uh, Tobia, we did get a question last week from Paul. G'day, Paul. Uh, he asks, uh, can the tabernacle be set up on a Shabbat? Uh, and uh, can, the, can the sons be anointed on a Shabbat? Can, can any work or anointing or set up be done uh, in regards to the, to the tabernacle on a Shabbat? No, the answer is very, very no. Like, no, not just no capital N-O period, but actually two capital letters in a 500-point font. Ex- that's exclamation the, marks. Yeah, I don't know, all over the place. And uh, That's the big message is, remember, remember what we talked about. The theme really is that we're doing what God did. God built us a house, but he stopped on the seventh day. We're building a house for him. We emulate that, and we're forbidden to do any work on the 
uh, any any building construction of the tabernacle on the on Shabbat. In fact, we derive all the thirty nine categories of forbidden work from what was done in the tabernacle. There was now there were sacrifices that had were prescribed for Shabbat, and those were for the community. But individuals could not bring a voluntary sacrifice on the Sabbath. Only those that are prescribed in the Torah. That's in fact going to come up at the end of this portion. We're going to see that in fact each tribe was assigned to bring their gifts, but on a separate day. And then they were told that they brought it on the Sabbath, even though it was a voluntary gift. So therefore, one could not do any voluntary work on the Sabbath. No construction of the tabernacle. And in fact, it is the it's God who who stopped creating our tabernacle on the seventh day. We too created in His image for our refrain from any creative activity in the tabernacle of building. So chapter 5, thank you for that. Chapter 5 kicks off with a, I suppose you say it's a type of quarantine. It says, The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Command the children of Israel that they put out of the camp every leper, everyone. Now again, I suppose that uh, which uh, my new King James is referring to as a leper, the same leprosy that we read about in uh, uh, Leviticus chapter 13 and 14. Um, which isn't actually leprosy at all, but uh, everyone who has a discharge and whoever becomes defiled by a corpse, you shall put both male and female, uh, you shall put them outside the camp, that the camp may not be defiled in the midst uh, of which I dwell. And the children of Israel did so, and they put outside the camp as the Lord spoke to Moses and the children of Israel. Next is the, yeah, Tobia. So just, just, just the point, we don't have a smelly chicken. I mean, next time your food, I mean, I made salmon a week ago and I picked, put it, yes, it was horrible. It went bad. That means the key is we don't have a smelly fish. If we want to eat, you know, a good piece of salmon, what does every person do when we cook? We put it to our nose, we smell it. We mm. don't have that. Therefore, the Torah is us, is providing a s- information because we don't have a sense for it. That's what's going on here. That means get right. it out. Therefore, Even, you can't smell the chicken, but I'm telling you, it's it's dangerous. So it has to be, you have to have a sterile camp to house a tabernacle. And then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the children of Israel when a man or a woman commits any sin, Tobia, any sin uh, that men commit in unfaithfulness against mm-hmm. the Lord. Now, we've spoken about this before. Can you uh, quickly give us a, a recap? Well, this is very important. This is critical, and it comes up in Isaiah 53. Here we have ourselves, we're introduced to a, a sacrifice for a person who sins any consent intentionally or unintentionally, and there's possibility that this individual can bring a sacrifice, which seems to, uh, which seems to be very different than the sin offering. This is a guilt offering. This is instead of the word Hebrew chatos. This is asham, and what is, what's very unique here is that you have a person. And the, the Torah brings into view a person who sinned, who sinned in many cases willingly. And not only did he, swear, uh, did he sin willingly, he stole, he also lied and he swore falsely under oath in the name of God. And then what happens is, is unlike Exodus, and we have to, we have to roll back the Rolodex into right after mm. the Ten Commandments, we're, we're there, what is highlighted is a thief who is caught. He never confesses and then has to pay back double. And he cannot bring any sacrifice for that type of sin. He has to, for if he steals money, he has to pay doubles, fine, a sheep, a cow, four and five times the amount of the theft. But there is a mitigating circumstance. The person whose who's conscience nags at his heart, and such a person steps forward on his own. There's no witnesses to show he could get away with it. He stole, he put it in his pocket, he says he swears he didn't do it, not enough evidence, they can't do anything with him. In this case, when the person says, you know, I did the wrong thing, and he confesses, so this person has now weakened the sin that they originally committed, and like a person who sons unintentionally, this person could bring in Asham. And this is, my friends, the language we find in the 53rd chapter. Remember of Isaiah, the very famous and most um, most argued over chapter in the, in the scriptures. That's why God God makes a a um, a contract with the servant. Im Toshim Oshim Nafsho, he said, God is speaking from verse 9 in Isaiah 53. If you, the servant, will make your soul a restitution, meaning you'll do exactly what is taking place here in this portion, what happened in Leviticus chapter 5. If you will repent on your own, then I will 
bring you the great blessings that I promised. So here we have the possibility for a sacrifice for sin uh, when a person uh, when a person confesses their sin. We're going to see in this portion, so I'll just give you a heads up, we're going to see a number of instances where people can bring a kind of sin offering. In every one of these instances, this is not a blatant sin or it's not obvious what is the sin. The, the, the sin is either not a full, does not have the full force of iniquity or has been weakened because of a subsequent event. In this case, it's re- confession, it's repentance. This person is mm. not a, a thief who's caught. Jason? Uh, yeah, there's uh, two things actually which I find quite interesting. First of all, um, it says that this is for a man or a woman who commits a sin, um, a trespass against the Lord. Uh, so that that's one quick issue, a trespass against the Lord, which results, it says at the bottom, with that person paying back plus a fifth against the person who is trespassed against, which instantly tells us that when we trespass against a human being, we're sinning against God. Because, why? Because the text tells us that we have to treat our brothers as ourselves. And as, as God looks at everyone equally, when we're damaging other people, we're damaging us. Um, God's given us this gift of life to be the best people we can. And as we are representatives of him, when we are in affront to other people, we're in affront to him and we're giving him a bad name. Um, that's that's one thing. Um, but what does that mean to, to sin? I was looking at a few different references and the best I could find, the shortest and most concise, concise was to break a trust. So another human being hopefully will expect you to deal with them in a righteous and honest manner. And if you break that trust by speaking behind their back in a bad way, by stealing, by causing personal injury, um, slandering, any number of things, you're breaking that trust. And that's what I what I look at when I in this in this piece of text. But what's really interesting for me later on in verse eight, if the man has no kinsman for whom restitution can be made for the guilt, the restitution should be made um, to the Lord, even to the priests. Um, kinsman. So I had a little look at that. Now, traditionally, that's read as someone that's um, joining Israel. So they're in the process, if you like, of a conversion. They've, they've come from a place where they were not Israel and they're becoming Israel because otherwise, why wouldn't you have a kinsman? There's 12 tribes. There's brothers and sisters and uncles and aunties and cousins. At some point, you're going to find someone you're, you know, what are the chances of you being the only person of your tribe? Pretty slim. And so the tradition is that this is a person who is a, a convert, if you like. And if you're a convert, um, and if, so if you sin against the convert, and that's, he's the only person of his tribe, then you have to give that offering to the priests. But why is that something that set off a little bell in my head? Because it says that, command the children of Israel that these things are going to happen. Um, and when I first read that, I thought, oh, it's only the children of Israel. There's no... There's no part here. This, and when I read that, I think the tribes of Jacob. So um, I read and I thought, well, there's no part here that says, um, and the sojourner that's within your gates. You know, the whole, there's one tribe for the native born and one for the sojourner. But this is including people. This is inclusive of people who weren't natively born of the tribe of Israel, but were in the process of joining the people of Israel. And how do we know that? Because of us. Yeah, that's it. right. There's only one way, in fact, nailed it exactly. There's only one way that you couldn't have a relative, and that is if you convert to Judaism. Because unlike any other system, uh, when one becomes a Jew, when one converts to Judaism, you not only change, that means it's not only identifying with the faith and embracing the faith of Israel, you're joining a new nation. Technically, in Jewish law, a person who converts to Judaism, their biological relatives do not, um, there's no law of inheritance, they don't, they're not, they, of course, your mother's still your mother and so on and so forth, but they don't have, they actually are joining a new nation. So that's precisely, they're very vulnerable, and these are the people who God is watching over there, are, as I've said in the past, there are 25 um, negative and positive commandments associated with being kind and being careful with the convert. Mm. And here we find that protection um, ensconced in the commandment in the, for the proselyte. Very well said. Fascinating. Fascinating. Now, from verse 11 on uh, to the end of uh, chapter 5, 
there is what I call uh, one of well, I suppose for me there's there's three particularly odd <laughs> uh, stories. We've dealt with uh, one of them. That is the um, uh, how the the leper is dealt with in in uh, uh, chapter thirteen, fourteen of Leviticus. This one here is the law uh, concerning uh, the spirit of jealousy. It goes like this. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the children of Israel and say to them, if any man's wife goes astray and behaves unfaithfully towards him and a man lies with her carnally and it is hidden from the eyes of her husband. And if it is concealed that she has defiled herself and there were no witnesses against her, nor was she caught. If the spirit of jealousy comes upon him and he becomes jealous of his wife who has defiled herself, or if the spirit of jealousy comes upon him and he becomes jealous of his wife, though she has not defiled herself, then the man shall bring his wife to the priest. He shall bring an offering uh, required for her, one-tenth of an ephah of barley meal. He shall pour no oil on it and put no frankincense on it because it is a grain offering of jealousy, an offering for remembering, for bringing iniquity to remembrance. Stop there. Mm-hmm. Let me ask you, it is an offering for bringing iniquity to remembrance. What, what does that mean to you, Toby? You have to look at what this offering is. This is an offering of coarse barley, but the Torah goes out of its way. Don't put any oil on it. Don't put any of what ordinarily a meal offering would be, because mm-hmm. everything that's coming into view here with the case of the Sota, this is a woman who appears to her husband to have been unfaithful. There's no witnesses that actually saw her. One thing I, I'll share with you, and that is, I have gone throughout the entire corpus of the Talmud, in every piece of Jewish literature I can find, and I have never found, to my knowledge it doesn't exist, a, re- a recording, a record case of this ever happening. Meaning, there's not one case that I could find in the entire r- rabbinic literature of a, a recording of this event happening where the woman actually died. There's not one anywhere that I could find anywhere. Mm. It's certainly not in the Talmud, which is astounding. It means we do, even though in the case of when, when someone is executed for murder, whatever, so we do have cases of, of people who are executed. It was a very rare event. There's mm. not one time where there is a an, an account of this ever happening anywhere in Jewish literature. So was very what what is very clear here is that I don't know that the Sota ever would have happened because it's it's given the the what what we are introduced here and the punishment here and she's standing before the priest here and everything any woman who had in fact carried out hadn't been unfaithful to husband she would confess it she would never allow herself to die why would she because if in mm-hmm. fact she confesses her sin although her husband would divorce her she wouldn't die because there was no witnesses so this could not be adjudicated she could not be put to death for this so why would she die why would she actually drink so everything mm-hmm. that's happening here is very obvious from all the anecdotal information is that this was uh, it's it's also the inverse of what they used to do in, in England that America ran away from and that is when they thought someone was a witch they tie away they tie a stone to her leg and throw her in the water and chain her up and they said that if she if she floated to the top they knew she was a witch and if she drowned then they if knew she, she was she a, drowned and died so it was the exact she was opposite innocent, yeah. here so that case is we it all we go wow what a, what a great injustice no wonder the Americans fled England and started a new a new nation because they mm. that was the kind of stuff they were running away from here's the reverse here is she's drinking something that ordinarily no one would die from it's very clear that if this happened any woman would confess it so what the case of the of the Sota is trying to do is to bring resolution to something. There is no witness. She she had stepped, she had done so, behaved in a way that's very inappropriate, but we don't actually have evidence. So this walks it out. I don't know that this ever happened where a woman actually dropped dead in the temple. Mm, interesting. Jason? Yeah, just a couple of things. Um, I, when I was uh, looking up a little bit of information about this, um, a few things uh, crossed my mind. Obviously, there's a parallel here with the, with the golden calf event. Moses comes down, and he sees the calf, he beats up the pieces, puts them into water, and forces the people mm. to drink it. Um, the, the only difference there I could see, apart from the reason, because it, it was idolatry, you know, um, was the witnesses. Obviously, there were plenty of witnesses <laughs> mm-hmm. on that day. Um, 
I was talking to um, a, another friend of mine during the week, um, Rabbi Neely, when I was doing the, the um, Haftarah Torah portion. Um, and at the end of that, when we got off air, I asked about this and I said, it seems a little bit harsh. You know, you've, you've got this woman and I, I, some men are just jealous and he takes his wife. He forces her into this situation, into this room in front of people um, to talk about their private time. Um, and she has to drink this concoction and then take on this vow. Um, and it seemed a bit, a bit rough to do that to somebody. Um, and uh, he said that that part of the thing was it was it was it was it was that rough that kind of violent if you like so it would stop men making that assumption i mean to put to be jealous is the one thing but to put the woman you love through that ordeal um i he mean would, if it, he would have to be in a in a in a serious in, state of jealousy in a, in a in a really bad place yeah and um this was one other thing oh yeah so like i also found it interesting that no oil was added to the to the grain portion that was given and I've made a mental note that as we go through the Torah portion, any grain that's assigned to a guilt or sin offering, generally speaking, I haven't found anything to break my rule yet. Tavia can probably help me there. Is not anointed with oil. So if it's a sin or a guilt offering, it doesn't have oil on it. And so when I've come across one that breaks that rule, then I'll delete it from my mind. Um, right. But if I find it interesting that um, anything that is <clears throat> given because of something negative isn't anointed with oil or frankincense um mm -hmm. so and then at the end there and um, we see um one of the first times probably maybe the first time amen is mentioned in the text as well amen and amen um i mean all of three abrahamic faiths use that word now um it's part of uh, the vocabulary of most people regardless of their faith or um lack of faith um but this is one of the first times it's mentioned in the text um, maybe Tavia can tell us a little bit about Amen, what it means and where it came from. Oh, Tavia. Well, Amen means that one is bearing witness that this is that this is true. One is saying that I stand by it. One is saying that I I I am I am attesting to the veracity of this. And therefore one is a full partner with God. So the, the Tavia, yeah. we we have uh, uh, we often hear a Hebrew pronunciation of Amen. Uh, if we watch Fiddler on the Roof, it's Umin, mm. which is which is correct. <laughs> well, you know, this is yeah, this is really a very good question of what's the correct pronunciation because we have different accents. So in in Fiddler on the Roof, the way a Hasidic pronunciation will be Umin, you might have it Hasidim Hasidic Jews might say it that way. I'm sure that uh, the prophets did not talk that way. And their pronunciation wasn't that way. What we would, if we are, if any listener is trying to determine authenticity in pronunciation in the way people dress, in the way we, a Jew uh, carries himself, do not look at European Jews. Because we have been thrown out of every country. We've been thrown from pillar to post, from exiled everywhere. So therefore, our uh, we're saying the words correctly, but our accent has definitely been affected by it. What you would want to do, and this, this is a, a virtual consensus, you'd want to look at a community that had basically never been exiled. And the perfect environment would be the Yemenite Jewish community. Mm, that have been say, there yeah. afraid. If you want to know probably how King David looked, how uh, the prophets addressed the peyot, the simanim, the curls. Mm. If you want to, well, when Isaiah spoke Hebrew, how did he likely sound? How did Ezra, when he read from the Torah, what did, what accent did he have? Yemenite Jewry was I was isolated, secluded. They were in contact with the rest of the Jewish world, so we knew who they were. They preserved everything with with. But they were not exiled or thrown all over the place. Iraqi Jews also have been there mm. in Iraq since. So that's you don't do not look look to Ashkenazi Jews. No, I'm not talking about Jewish law, but if you want to know about accents, pronunciation, so they would say Amen. The Yemenite Jews actually have a pronunciation for the consonant Ayin, which has mm -hmm. a very I I can't even replicate it very well. Yeah, I, I, yeah that kind of reliant I can't do yeah, it. Yeah. yeah, so they they have this very deep. There's no question that there that if you wanted to get a sense of how which pronunciation is uh, 
probably you but don't look at at Ashkenazi Jews because we lived in the Christian world and therefore we were thrown all over the place. We were running away from from from, the, from Rome for thousands of years from every country. Mm. So we're you know, and yet we, while while it's uh, rather turbulent in Yemen at the moment, they are still there, and may God continue to preserve them. And uh, but but yes, I've been told that a number of times that their their accent and their traditions, their customs, the way they look, even and the way they sound, is probably the closest you will ever get to right. uh, yeah. what it was like in the time of Abraham. Yeah. It continues in uh, chapter six, and here we have the law of the Nazarites. Now, this is uh, something that's always intrigued me. First of all, Tobia, why would anyone take a vow of of a Nazarite. What is the purpose of that? I mean, why why would you do it in the first place? Mm. So remember, remember the 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 rule we talked about how to study the scripture, and that is that we always are looking for what's called zvugim, which are couples. The Torah juxtaposition juxtaposes one case against another to highlight. It's not an accident that the law of the Nazarite comes immediately after the law of the unfaithful woman. Here is a person who has who would likely have seen, I mean, what would drive somebody to want to separate themselves and to distance themselves from society and from the very instrument that would cause somebody to sin, particularly in the sin of, 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 uh, of carnal un- unfaithlessness. So the Nazarite typically is a person who sees around him or her, he sees people living in a way that's, uh, that brings about sin. And what brings about sin? What brings about a person sinning is drinking to excess. That makes a person very vulnerable to that particular type of iniquity. So therefore, mm-hmm. in, in, in the, the Nazir is looking at, or in a world around him, and he's a very interesting uh, person because he's very holy. He's distancing himself. He doesn't drink uh, any product of a, a grape at all. He also doesn't cut his hair. And this is but an interesting individual in that he doesn't, he's in one way, he's looked as very holy and very sacred. But on the other hand, there's, it's, it's not the perfect approach to resisting sin. Because what he's doing is cutting himself off. We're going back again to Genesis, the ladder of connecting heaven and earth. He's sort of saying, I'm just going to distance myself from earth. And it's for that reason that when his Nazarite vow is has been, as we will see in a moment, comes to a conclusion... So our sages are all over the fact that he has to bring a sin offering. For what does he have to bring such an offering? Now, obviously, again, once again, it highlights the rule that whenever there's a sin sacrifice for any type of iniquity, it means that the iniquity is weakened. It's not for, you know, someone holding a bank and getting caught. But here's a person who uses an approach to distance himself so he doesn't get in the kind of trouble that... uh, that immoral behavior gets, but he cuts himself all from the world. So in one way, he does it, something that's very holy. But in a sense, you distance yourself from the world. That's not the ideal approach. And a carbon chatos, a sin offering, then comes at the as part of the ritual. And one other very delicious thing, I'll show you something delicious. And I actually, I didn't mean, that was not intended to be a play on words, but it came out to a play on words. If you look carefully, I know I'm jumping a drop ahead, if I may, but I'll show you, it, you see this very explicitly because when the end of his uh, it means the minimum time for a person to be a Nazir would be 30 days. You can't say, I'm going to be a Nazir for two days. We learn it out from the verse, but it's a 30-day, a literal month, but he can extend it, as the Bible tells us. But at some stage, he says, okay, I'm done. I'm ready to complete it, and that's what I'm discussing here. So Torah describes what happens with him. We talked about that the person um, uh, the person then has to bring a sin offering, but you know what he's told to do? Here, take a glass of wine and have a drink. And that's what happens at the very end. And he's still called a nausea at the very end of this, which means he has found a way at the end of all this to integrate himself with the physical. Uh, wine is a great thing. It's a holy thing. I, I counted it once. I think there's maybe 150 times in the Bible wine is mentioned. Mm. In most cases, it's very positive, but it could be abused. So at the very end, the part of this is... Now have some wine and control it rather than say, I'm cutting myself off from the whole experience. And you'll also notice that at the end of this, he's called a nausea even while he's drinking that wine. That means he, this is his path of finding the middle ground and being able to work with the physical world, its temptations, and resist it rather than cutting himself off. 
I um, uh, I've just discovered something. Uh, I'm, I'm looking in my Bible just to confirm. While I'm double checking this, Jason, you had something to add there. Oh yeah, I just wanted to run through some of the um, notes I put down. It's kind of interesting to me that um, uh, Nazir can be a man or a woman. Uh, I, we often only think about it being um, applicable to men because of the Samson story. Uh, in fact, mm-hmm. the the, um, the have to wrap for this week. Um, we talk about the kind of the conception, if you like, of um, Samson. Um, mm. And, you know, it's, it's his parents' um, story. Did, how, he used to be a Nazarite from birth, right? Right, yeah, which is um, is the only instance I know of that a parent was um, given instruction on um, what was going to happen to their child before they were born in as far as a religious walk. Um, this It's kind of... Uh, interesting to me that this guy he's not allowed to um to cut his hair in any way it just has to grow out that's a sign of their of of power it's not just samson but in general it's kind of a vitality thing um no alcohol and not allowed to touch any dead people not even his close family so in some respects he takes on a lot of the extra um commandments that you might find in a priesthood um but um then they're not allowed to drink um when they're in the in the holy place um, but he's not allowed to drink at all. He's taken on a little bit extra and is doing that voluntarily, which is kind of, a, you know, it's a big deal, I think. Um, and I, it's a shame, you know, for me, <laughs> I think uh, for us to have that outlet now, to be able to go the extra mile in a, in a prescribed way would be an interesting experiment. Mm-hmm. But because we can't, we can't finish that chapter, you know, we can undertake that vow, but we can't finish it because we can't do what is prescribed at the end of the course, we can't bring those offerings. Which brings me to the New Testament, which I very rarely do. Okay. Oh, what a pleasure. All the Hasidic listeners are like, <laughs> We're just are driving up our Hasidic listenership. Everybody uh, wait, wait, wait. I've also got something which um, is going to run. I think you and I are going to collide with, with uh, but I've just got some hilarious study notes that I have to read you in a minute. Please continue, Jason. All right. So uh, in the... In the um, book of Acts, we have an issue where Paul is coming head to head with the council in uh, Jerusalem, and oh, uh, yes. and James is is like, you know, you've been doing this, and Paul's, I'm not doing that, and Peter's, you know, yes, you have, and he says, right, we're gonna have to, <laughs> we're gonna have to make you, we're gonna have to make you a little bit more acceptable to the Jewish community here. Um, we've got this whole bunch of um, Nazis, we've got this bunch of Nazarites. Um, you need to pay or help pay for the sacrifices that they need to give to finish their period as Nazarites. Which, the shaving of the head and so on and so forth. Right. Well, but he's going to go and cover that. Well, everyone will see him doing that publicly and everyone will go, ah, oh, Paul, he's, he's obviously Torah observant chap good. But during that process, Paul is paying for other people to have sin sacrifices done. Now, that strikes me as something that's hugely interesting and odd because for the whole of his... Uh, preaching, if you like, he tells us that's not necessary. But here he is paying good money to have sin sacrifices done in the temple. Not only that, but some... Now, Toby, you might be able to help me here because this is vague in my mind, but my understanding is, is that some decades earlier... Uh, this was actually done by Herod in order to appease the people and gain favor uh, that he actually paid for uh, a bunch of people's, um, uh, the, the ongoings of the Nazarite vow. He took care of that. Um, I think there might have been 40 of them, if I remember correctly, in order to uh, appease the people and show them that, you know, he was uh, Torah observant. Does that ring a bell with you? Yeah. Uh, Herod, Herod had wanted to make a mark for himself as not being the lunatic that, in fact, that he was. And he tried in many ways to show that he was normative. He wasn't a, he was an Edomite. So, therefore, his conversion was not accepted because mm-hmm. the, his, this group of people were forcibly converted to Judaism. Mm-hmm. I know that's shocking. So, he would do those sorts of things. He also killed many people and he tried to make amends mm. in his in his behavior. Uh, so could it be in the in the book of Acts here that the writer of the book of Acts is borrowing from that uh, example and applying it to Paul uh, for the sake of the narrative? Is that a possibility? It's a possibility. You know, this the, it's these passages that have uh, New Testament scholars wondering if the author of the book of Acts ever read a letter of Paul. Uh, would these things ever appear in Paul's own writings? We don't find it. 
would we find Paul in his own letters saying that he circumcised anybody? Of course not. So it's these kinds of passages where uh, the author of Acts is trying to is seeking to illustrate that everyone's on the same page. Same page, right? That's mm-hmm. what's, I mean, the, Acts is trying. Author of Acts, who was we, we just call him Luke. But we don't have no idea. We know what he was about. That is, he wanted to show a that Paul's idea of Christianity was successful, but really everybody was on the same page. And this is um, this is to push back against those who are accusing, accusing Paul of not being on the same page at all. I to me, when I read these kinds of passages in the book of Acts, I'm looking at a, a um, highly improved expression of Christianity, something we don't find in Paul's own letters, and a pushback against those who said that Paul was completely outside the norm of Judaism, as you would assume if you read Paul's letters. I have great question if the author of Acts read any of Paul's letters. Mm. No. So now, while we're while we're still in the New Testament, I have to read this to you guys. Um, while we were going through numbers and you were talking, I was just reading through the study notes, as is sometimes fun to do in my New King James Study Bible, my Nelson's New King James Study Bible. Now, the study note on uh, chapter six, verses two to eight, it makes a note. It says uh, a Nazarite, not to be confused with Nazarene, one from Nazareth. And it says, see chapter 2, verse 23. Now, of mm. course, chapter 2, verse 23 is a fun verse. It's it Matthew. says, Just, in Matthew, yeah. it says, uh, and he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. Now, if I go down to the cross-references on that in the New Testament of my, of my Nelson's New King James Study Bible, it gives me, believe it or not, a cross-reference, particularly in regards to, quote, which was spoken by the prophets, plural it has one cross-reference and it takes me to believe it or not judges chapter 13 verse 5 which is (laughs) which is um for behold you shall conceive and bear a son and no razor shall come upon his head this is samson saying that the child shall be a a nazarite to god from the womb and yet just a little bit further back i just read uh in the book of numbers that um a nazarite is not to be confused with the nazarene can, oh my I, goodness. can I just jump in there real quick? Uh, yeah, Three, you, you, do, you better do it best because like, my mouth was up, my I tongue know, was heading down. My eyeballs rolled back in my head. Go ahead. So three days ago, three days ago, someone posted, um, tagged me in a post that said, Jason and Lynn, which you'll find me on on Facebook, Jason and Lynn, and somebody else, why does Tovia Singer, she said Trovia Singer, it's not her fault, I'm sure she's just typing very quickly, why does Tovia Singer say, that the city of Nazareth is never mentioned in the Jewish Bible when it's right there in Judges 13.5. And obviously I gave my response, but this is Tobias' chance to give his. Okay, no, I mean, I mean, I mean, this is... It. Uh, so what's very obviously Judges chapter 5 is about the birth of Samson. Ju- the word there is nozir, which, which means a woman uh, who doesn't cut their hair. In, what happens is when it's anglicized, so it sounds the same as Nazareth, the city of Nazareth. But in fact, the city of Nazareth is not spelled that way at all. It's not. It's in Hebrew. It's if you say to an Israeli, doesn't know in English, Nazareth. What is Nazareth? It's Nazareth. So it's spelled completely different. So it's, it's striking who Nelson is speaking to and what he thinks his audience is or what he knows to begin with. It's two entirely different words, spelled entirely different. Have nothing Isn't to do with it amazing though? It's Isn't shocking. it amazing though? Yeah. In Numbers it says, don't confuse this with Nazarene, but when you go to Matthew 2.23 and it says it was spoken by the prophets, they direct you not back to this, this passage in Numbers, of course, because they said don't confuse it. They take you to Judges in the hope that you've forgotten or you didn't read that note. Mm. Jason, we've got to make a meme of this later <laughs> on. I'm going to give you all the quotes. This is one of the funniest things I've written in a long time. But, but of course, just very, very, very quickly, Tovio, they have to do something. Why? Because there is no cross-reference. Right. This is one of 11 fulfillment citations in the book of Matthew. No other gospel author engages in any of this kind of quoting uh, to fulfillment citations. And here we have a passage that there is no verse anywhere that says that the prophets uh, said the Messiah would be called a, a person from Nazareth. In fact, the city of Nazareth never appears anywhere in the Jewish scriptures. I, I remember uh, a number of commentators on Matthew 2.23 uh, say that 
there was a prophecy that the Messiah was supposed to be born in the city of Nazareth. It's just that they didn't write it in their Bible. Others try to compare it to the Netzer, to the branch of David. They, they, they struggle with this mightily. I will just say this. It is this. If the book of Matthew had never been written, if the book of Matthew hadn't been written, then um, I think many, many more people would have, con- Jews would have converted to Christianity. Christianity failed probably in about the year 50 with the Jews. It exploded with non-Jews, but with Jews, precisely because of this kind of behavior. Of, of If they did, if they just said, we, there's our faith that, you know, the Messiah is supposed to be born from Nazareth, or he's supposed to be born, you know, with the, it's the fulfillment citations, it's this type of behavior that sends a, you know, it sends the, the big flag up and saying, whoa, this is not the word of God. Yes, hmm. it's, it is shocking that there should be such object ignorance of the... That, it, it is absolutely amazing. Now, verse 22, moving on, uh, the Lord spoke to Moses saying... Wait, speak how do you to Aaron. go from yep. Matthew? I can't. It's like, I need a moment. We have to do something. Let's say, like, on Shavuot, just so you know, there's a tradition on Shavuot. Like, by the way, this portion is always read around before or after Shavuot. There's a tradition to eat dairy. I'm not going to go into why, but we don't eat... So, we actually had dairy and then meat, but we drink something in between because we don't eat them together. But then we, like, do some quick gargle for a moment. Uh, shall, I, shall I pass around some hot towels? Is that what you need? Some, like when you're on a long flight? Some nice hot towels. Uh, I should say, by the way, Ireland has not produced one Nazarite in, in 2,000 years because I think the prohibition... All right, I won't say anything about Ireland. That would never work here. But you know what? To be fair, you cannot buy alcohol on a Sunday morning. Is that right? That's, it's yeah, that's a lot. Because it's half price on Saturday, that's why. <laughs> and, and seriously, on, on Saturday night, there's a mad rush. And on, and on bank holidays, when those shops are closed, there's a huge rush to all the off-licenses. I wish I was joking, but I'm not. Uh, well, uh, so if, there's, if it's Saturday night, the, the shelves you are empty on Saturday night. Wine. You can't buy wine on Sunday morning in Ireland, but you can, bro- you can marry your brother on, in Ireland. Now. <laughs> so I just want everyone to know that. It's, you can be so whacked out for the Saturday night drinking that Sunday morning they'll perform a wedding with with you and your <laughs> all right anyway so right. Will, moving uh, on uh, okay okay and the lord spoke to moses saying speak to aaron and his sons saying this is the way you shall bless the children of israel say to them oh wait okay go ahead go ahead go ahead, go ahead. yeah okay you okay uh, you're bracing yourself oh no, this is so no this is very holy actually this is very i want holy. i want if you don't mind i'm going to use the tetragrammaton here to pronounce the letters oh, of the great. tetragrammaton that'll be great that'll be great so i'll read it so it says yud vav bless you and keep you yud vav make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you yud vav lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace so shall they put my name on the children of Israel, and I will bless them. Tobia. Mm. This is very special, because here, the, this, is, this is the blessing that I give my people. I'm a priest. I'm a descendant of Aaron. And what's very important is that the priest is, has to say these words precisely and only in Hebrew. This blessing could never be made in another language. Because God is saying, look, the power is not coming from you, Aaron. You are, or your sons, you're not the mediator, but you have to say exactly these words. In fact, look at the language. Precisely with these words, you are to bless the children of Israel. And you see, it says again, Emor Lahem. And that's why in a synagogue, when the priest gets up to bless the congregation, the priest ascends a duchen, which is a, a platform. That's why a synagogue typically has a platform where the ark is, where the Torahs are kept. And the the priest puts his, it's a very spiritual experience as a priest to do this. And we cover our heads completely, and we say these words, but we cannot say them in English. We can't say them in another language, only in Hebrew. We're not allowed to add one word to it. We're not allowed to take away any word from this buzz. We have to say it precisely. In order to ensure that, look, what happens if someone doesn't know Hebrew and they're a Kohen? So the cantor, the person who's leading the services, says, Yivarech and then the Kohanim, the priests, bless. Yivarecha means to bless and to increase. That Hashem should bring manifold blessings that you should have. Even if you look at the word Barach, which is blessings, 
the base is, you know, in the numerical language, is the number two. The uh, the of gematria, the chaf is mm-hmm. twenty. The ratio is two hundred. So we see the the exponential growth of the number two, growth, 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 shem great, but greatness and just uh, growth without any control or guarding can be very dangerous. I know many people who become well, very wealthy and their whole lives fall apart. But be with control. That means mm-hmm. God will watch over this growth and protect you and bless you in all of the things that you have. We, we as a Kohanim, we make a blessing before we bless the congregation. We say, Blessed our Lord, King of the universe, that you have um, you have sanctified us with the holiness of Aaron, and you have commanded us to uh, bless the children of Israel with love, with love, because we want we we hear God is saying we want the children of Israel to grow, that God's light. Not only should a person materially grow, and their growth should be one that shouldn't be a disaster for them, but should be watched over and guarded. But the light of God, Yair Hashem, is the light of God, and his mitzvot of his face should be upon you, and God should have the great, uh, his countenance should be upon you. Yisra Hashem, like just like the Ark of the Covenant was raised up by a very special family, God, raise up your face. And within all these factors that are happening all around you, there should be peace between all of it. So it's very great growth, and it's very powerful, and it creates a tremendous intimacy between the priest who is who is working on behalf of the children of Israel and the congregation that receives these blessings directly from the priest. Mm. Jason? I just uh, wanted to jump in a little with um, the word. So we've, we've got this a great um, passage in here, his face to shine upon you, or that his face will shine upon you. And Toby said the word countenance there a few times. Um, countenance is something is a word that probably if we've if we're familiar with reading older translations of the text countenance comes up quite a lot i mean in, i think it's in the book of esther it says it is countenance fell um and that doesn't necessarily mean um his face fell off um rather than his uh, demeanor fell so he looks from mm. the floor and looks down right so but when the countenance is up um then that's it's a happy thing it's a friendly thing mm. and that's really what what the text is saying is saying that his, uh, because, I mean, we know when we read the text that at the beginning, Israel daren't approach the creator because if someone looks face to face with God, they die. They said it. I mean, even in the, uh, again, I'll keep harking back to the, um, the Haftarah portion this week, but there's a reason the Haftarah portion um, is assigned to, to certain weeks. Um, but in that, um, they're speaking to this messenger from, from God and, um, uh, Mrs. Samson's Samson's mom. Let's just say that she doesn't have a name. Um, Samson's mom says to Samson's dad, um, "This person came, and he said, well, how are we even going to look at him? Surely, if we talk to him, we'll die, um, because he's a divine being.' Um, but this isn't the case in this passage because God's looking at us, but He's not looking at us with His face, but with His countenance, with His with His um, blessing, and with His radiance, and with His." Um, Oh, with wow. a favorable demeanor. Yeah, with a favorable demeanor. That's a really nice way of putting it. Um, so it's when we when we read this passage, and it's amazing, and it's a shame we could, just can't do an hour on these few lines. Mm. Um, it's really lovely to remember that. If, in fact, we could we could put that in. So may he look at you with full favor. That's a you know what a wonderful blessing that is. And it's great that we've got Tovia um, with his lineage here to talk us um, through this passage because there's so much in here to unpack. Mm. A priest lives off, he doesn't have a plot of land. He, I have no land uh, assigned to me. Now, uh, there were cities given to priests for them to live and for Levites all over 48 mm. cities, but we, the priest did have, there's something very special here, the priest did have a great benefit, a personal incentive to bless the people because if they did well, then he did well. After all, if, if they made a mm. million dollars, he got 10% you know, in, yeah. in, in thing. So the, the word there that we're, we're supposed to treat the Jewish people with love, which means we're supposed to be just 
you should do the best not for me that I would gain from it. This is something that a pri- I think every priest feels when we bless the people. We don't feel like, you know, maybe if you'll bless it, then you'll give me more money. I'll better commission and people were, could give the priest extra money. No, it means with complete love and Hashem is using us in a special way. These are the words from Hashem we give to you. And these are the words, in fact, that parents bless their children with. But I, I will say to those of you who don't read Hebrew uh, well, that these words, if you ever say to someone else, that you should, you should. These words are very important to only read in the original Hebrew, and you should. You can any go online, I'm sure, and hear it read properly, and use the Hebrew, and not use any other language, for it, because there's a special commandment with this blessing that you have to use this language, this exact prescription, and there's no deviation from that. No deviation. Chapter seven is the last chapter of our Torah portion this week. Uh, there's a lot in it, and I'm not going to read it all. Uh, I'm going to just read the first few verses, and I'm going to hand over to you, Tavir. It says, Now, it came to pass when Moses had finished setting up the tabernacle that he anointed it, and he consecrated it, and all its furnishings, and the altar, and all its utensils. So he anointed them and consecrated them. Uh, Then the leaders of Israel, the heads of their father's houses, who were the leaders of the tribes and over those who were numbered, made an offering. And they brought their offering before the Lord, six covered carts and 12 oxen, a cart for every two uh, leaders and uh, for each one an ox. And uh, they presented them before the tabernacle. Now, what, what follows is the individual, I suppose, are these free will offerings, Tobia, divided into the, the, the 12 uh, leaders? Yeah. Now, what, what does this say about each of them? How, how can we uh, put this into a nutshell? Well, first of all, there's, there's something very striking about this, these passages, and that is each leader was a person of enormous stature. Uh, these are people, quite Jewish tradition, who, when the Jews were in Egypt and they had was suffered greatly under the uh, army of the Egyptians who were beaten, they were willing to risk themselves to protect their own people. In, in contrast, to the way some kapos behaved in during World War II, these are the people who were outstanding individuals. What you can't miss is that they all brought the identical, the independently, voluntarily from their own personal pocket, not from any community funds brought the exact same, the identical uh, gift. And each one of these gifts are symbolic, uh, symbolic of Jewish history, of the great uh, numinous events in from the beginning of time, going from the age of Adam. So we have there the the Ka'aras Kosef, uh, which is the silver bowl, and that is which adds up to 930. Those are the years of of Adam to the 130 shekels, which was uh, the age that the first couple was when they had their first child. So they're going to go through. What's interesting is the Torah didn't have to spend these many verses on it. The Torah, was, under ordinary circumstances, is so concise with words that it 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 does it puts it in like Jason brought up at the beginning of this podcast. The Torah, you have to like look all over to figure out how do you fill in the missing pieces, the missing parts. The Torah actually does something very strange here, and that is it could have just listed all the leaders, and at the end said they all brought this. Right, but what, mm. what makes this whole chapter so long is it actually just repeats it over and over again. But it's the same thing. You see what I'm saying? So it could have mm. the Torah could have. There's a big message here because you, know, you could have decades that are missing from Tanakh. Tanakh is not interested in it. But there's you got, Torah could have written this. I mean, if I were writing this and trying to keep it short, I would just go through all the all the tribes. This is in the order in the way that they walk through the wilderness. And then I would say, at the end, I would say, look, these are the things that they brought. Instead of going through each individual one, when each individual gift is, in fact, identical. They all, you just put the, the names. Yeah, you just put the names yeah. there. And then at the end, say, this is what they all brought. And he would have saved an enormous amount of parchment here. So, right. so what's happening is this brings us back, my friends, to where we started from. And that is that each tribe brings to the table this unique feature. They're different. We saw in the beginning of Pashas Nasa, in the beginning of this portion, that different sons of Levi had different assignments and what mm-hmm. they were supposed to do and what they were supposed to be. So each brings a unique feature. We discussed in the beginning of the portion that each tribe has unique features, qualities to them. In fact, 
um, Jacob, it doesn't even seem like when Jacob speaks to Shim, Simon, and, and Levi, it doesn't seem like he's blessing them, he's really cursing them. But as it turns out, Levi ultimately shines bright and becomes the first, because it has the rights and the leadership of the firstborn. It's taken away from Reuben, and so on. So we have these tribes, each one bring essential qualities together, so there's a unique texture to each tribe. Each one is different. Each family is different, and their responsibility is different. The Torah goes out of its way to assign everything, so there shouldn't be fighting between people. Who, who gets to do what? No, no, we know. Every family knows exactly what they're getting. In the church, the, whatever it's called, they fighting, beating each other every day, the priests there, because they don't know what they're making up as they go along. But what happens is that they're all one. That means that no tribe should think that what we are bringing to the table, whether we're carrying the Ark of the Covenant, one Levite uh, family, or we're the ones who are carrying all the curtains. That's in the beginning of the portion. Maybe I'm more important. No. Everyone is bringing the same thing to the table. And that's what the Torah goes out of its way to just over and over and over again. One other thing the Torah does is you notice this could have all been done in one day. That means they could have all have this is a, a this was a spectacle that must have been mm. I, what I would have given to observe this. This is amazing. A huge precision. Oh, but this actually could have been done in one day. All 12 could have brought all their things in one day. But Hashem puts aside each day for another tribe. And and each each day, each tribe brings the same thing, but they get their own day. And again, each one, so they have the 70 shekels. This is, refers to the Shivam Amin, the 70 nations following the uh, following the flood and so on. The, the ladle uh, that was used represents the hand of God, the 10 shekels represents the, uh, the weight of 10 shekels, represents the 10 commandments. So everything that's happening is very symbolic. But each tribe is given an individual day, but you bring the exact same thing. It's so delicious. And that's what's the, the picture that we're getting here is mm. each one is set separately, but they all bring the same thing and everyone gets their own day. And that's what's key. And with, just like in one body, if a person is a heart doctor, they have to still know about the whole circulatory system, not just what's going on in the chest. All the Jewish people are one family, one nation. That's how we can grow. And incidentally, my friends, I, I don't want to say a negative thing, but the cause of destruction in the Second Temple was the breaking of the soul, the, the personal, the, the, the baseless hatred, that's the most destructive thing for the Jewish people. And acting together, bringing all of our different talents to the table and making one child, one nation that is part of, has every dimension of our people together, this is what makes us great. And that's what comes into view at the end of this extraordinary towering chapter. Mm. And so it ends this way. It says, uh, this was the, uh, the dedication offering for the altar after it was anointed. Now, when Moses went into the tabernacle of meeting to speak with him, I've got. He heard the voice of one speaking to him from above the, I've got mercy seat, but uh, above the, the cover that was on the ark of the testimony from between the two cherubs. Thus, he spoke to him. And uh, what's, what's very clear, I suppose, Tobia, is that when he went in there, God was speaking to him from the ark. Yeah. Audibly. Yeah. yeah. yeah he- they conversed that way. Uh, you know, when Samuel experienced prophecy as a as a young man, he didn't know what he was hearing because he was sleeping and he hears a voice. Moses yeah. had the ability, unique ability, you know, to actually hear the voice of God and completely one speaks to his neighbor. This is at the end of the thing. I um, at the at the end of the spectacular. All the tribes have been welcomed. Shechina is there. Everyone's together. When the Shechina is there, when all the people are there together. That's when you can have this great soaring event that the nation experienced. And Moses was able to hear the voice that came out between the two uh, images of the, of the, uh, uh, that were on top of the Ark of the Covenant. Unbelievable. Jason, final thoughts, my friend. Oh, just how awesome that was. I mean, uh, the, uh, it's hugely interesting to me that each of the 12 princes and the tribes brought an equal number um, in size and width of objects. So as Toby said, no one was trying to outdo anybody. At that, mm. at that point, they were all on the same page. They all had the same agenda, if you like. Um, and no one at that point was unhappy with their lots. Um, it was interesting to me that the, out of the four groups um, responsible for moving um, the the um, the tents, the Levites didn't get to carry um, the they got to carry the, the the ornaments, if you like, of the tent of meeting, 
but the heavier things went to the other three groups. And, I, I, and I'm starting to get ready for Cora, and I'm starting to wonder if that was, you know, a sore back may have been something that went towards his um, his mm. um, turn and sure personality right. later on. Yeah, so well, that's actually Cora is one of my favorite passages, so I'm looking forward to that. Um, yeah. But I'm wondering if that if that start if this is where it started to be an issue. Hmm. Yeah, well, uh, well, we'll maybe later there, but just one note: there. Cora was not. He recognized the fact that Levy's preeminence, no one, but he was sick. He, of course, well, you know, we'll get to that in Korach, but no one questioned the preeminence of the Levites in terms of giving them a certain mandate to be the teachers of the Jewish people, inspiring the Jewish people to carry the great things that they did. And they are returning to the Messianic age. You'll see them introduced again in the, in the end of the book of Ezekiel. The families of the priestly families, my own families, be gathered together to once again carry out the services. Uh, but one thing is special, that is that the, the the Birchus Kahanim is carried out to this day in synagogues in Israel every single day. The priests uh, bless uh, the congregation outside of the land of Israel, uh, typically only on the holidays that the priests carry this out. But it goes on every single day in the land of Israel. The, the priests bless the, every Shachris, every morning prayer, the priests bless the congregation. Beautiful. Thank you, Jason of spiritualbabies.net, Rabbi Tobias Singer of outreachjudaism.org, where you can get a where you can get a copy of Let's Get Biblical, Why Doesn't Judaism Accept the Christian Messiah Volumes 1 and 2. I highly recommend these books. Thank you, gentlemen. Next week we will be in Beha Alotecha. And until then, dear listeners, be blessed and be set apart by the truth of our Father's Word. Shalom. Hey, dear listeners, Jono here reminding you that we are returning to Israel with Rabbi Tobias Singer, and we want you to come with us this November. Go to truthtoyou.org and click on the Tanakh Tour of Israel and join us as we walk where judges, kings, priests, and prophets made history in the Holy Land. Seats are limited, so don't delay the Tanakh Tour of Israel this November on truthtoyou.org.